This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to the latest Bottom Line podcast from the Liverpool Echo's Blood Red channel, where we take a look at what happens away from the pitch at Anfield. In recent weeks, we've covered such topics as the Redbird investment, Liverpool's financial accounts and the fallout from the failed European Super League plot. And we've welcomed guests to the show, such as football finance expert Peter Maguire, owner of Danish side Helsingor, Jordan Gardner and football economics professor Stefan Szymanski. Today we're delighted to be joined by Daniel G, a sports lawyer at Sheridan Sport, a law firm which specialises in sports and esports. Daniel is also a successful author, his book Done Deal, shining a light on the inside practices of football contracts, transfer dealings and the big business of the Premier League. I can confirm that it is a hugely insightful piece of work and I recommend it highly. Today we are going to be discussing multi-club portfolios. What are they for? Why are they becoming more prevalent in the game? What are the benefits and what does it mean for Liverpool and FSG moving forward? Daniel, welcome. Thanks so much, Dave, and thanks for the very kind words uh, on the book. Um, yeah, no, it, it, it's, 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 a, it's a great read. It's, um, it, it's a first port of call for me, especially when I've been trying to uh, decipher everything about multi-club ownership. Um, it's been, been hugely insightful. Um, yeah, we, we, I thought it, it's, a, it's a timely topic because we've seen so much um, of this uh, going on. I mean, Red Bull have already kind of cornered the market in, I suppose. They have a huge myriad of clubs attached to, to what they do. Uh, and like what we've seen recently in Manchester City have expanded their City football group um, in Europe and beyond. Um, what does it all mean? Why are why are clubs looking towards this and, and what, what are the benefits of them doing it? Well, I, I think there are quite a few in practice and in theory, but the, the, the practicalities of um, owning one club um, never mind uh, numerous clubs, uh, are uh, pretty difficult in truth. I mean, I think you only need to look to, um, uh, you know, unfortunately the difficulties and problems that um, owners, when they come in um, and take um, and take control of one club, uh, to understand of actually to get under the, uh, the bonnet of how a football club runs, how the ecosystem works, how deals get done, how the commercials of stuff, of stadium issues, regulatory stuff, agents... You know, for um, for lots of ownership groups that are quite new to the the, the football space, if not to the sports franchise space, um, you know, football is sometimes seen as a bit of a um, a basket case to a degree. But I think if we're talking about then, um, you know, how City Football Group have done things really well, the guys, uh, the Pozzo family at Watford, obviously own Udinese as well, Red Bull, um, to a degree as well. Um, and other entities are obviously the Pacific Group that own uh, Barnsley and, uh, and other clubs, including clubs in Belgium too. Um, I think one of the, the things that springs to mind um, are efficiencies and economies of scale to a degree. So um, if, for example, you have or the, the group has um, a very big commercial department, that those sports rights properties can be marketed and spread across numerous territories and jurisdictions. And then you have very good brand relationships. That obviously helps. If you have one centralized um, entity that takes care of everything from data to scouting to talent identification, that obviously can have its benefits. We can talk about in time, obviously, about the different regulatory uh, employment and work permit regimes that obviously can be of value to various clubs in certain jurisdictions pre and post Brexit as well. Um, and then generally, if we're talking about that commercial on field 
managerial management um, and then um, all of those central hub issues combined um, that can be of major benefits to one entity that's looking to acquire clubs in different jurisdictions at the same time you know um, it's very hard to do well and that's why obviously a lot of credit has to go to entities like the city group who obviously have big financial muscle but at the same time need to try and do things in the right way to benefit from all of those clubs in all of those jurisdictions could there be a a few headaches pros by it because i know i note in your in done deal it mentions about red bull's own um problems when almost the, the clubs in that group some of them become almost too successful so you, you have salzburg now um kind of biting at their heels on in the champions league and um, what are the the kind of the rules and regulations around kind of this method of ownership uh, in, in terms of making sure that it doesn't affect kind of the integrity of competition so the 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 uh, the, the brief story really is that the each um, each league will have their own ownership rules. So if you can imagine on a domestic level and then obviously for international club competition like the different UEFA competitions, there then will be another layer of um, uh, UEFA club rules and integrity rules. But usually the way that things work, at least on a domestic level, is you know no um, owner can own more than one um, club um, who may be competing in the same competition. So for example, um, you know, Liverpool's owners, FSG, wouldn't be able to buy or have a significant stake in a championship club or a League One club, for example, because there is the possibility, probably less likely possibility, Liverpool get relegated, but the more possibility that a League One to championship club get into the Premier League and then would have to be able to play against a team or two teams that were co-owned. And then you have all the issues that you talked about around integrity of competition, around is it a benefit for one team to win at the detriment to the other team? Is it that off-field decisions are taken rather than the, um, you know, the on-field performance of particular players in a managerial team? So that's at a domestic level. But obviously when it becomes more pronounced, can be um, at a European, usually at a European club competition level where um, there have been instances in the past with Red Bull and then Enoch, who obviously um, spurs as owners when they own stakes in clubs like AEK Athens and Sparta Prague um, and others, um, where if though if one central ownership group owns and or controls more than one club that are competing in the same international competition, European competition, um, then there can be issues around integrity of competition. So, for example, I'll try and give a practical example. Let's just say one team, uh, two teams were owned by the same entity. They were playing each other in the last round of the Champions League group games. One team needed to win in order to get through to the knockout round. The other team had already finished bottom and had no incentive to, to win and didn't really matter. Then there would be questions about the perceived integrity of that game going ahead because presumably the owners who own both clubs would say to the team that couldn't win anything, well, let our other team win who has the better chance then of getting into the knockout phases, etc. So the, the UEFA rules on multi-club ownership effectively means that no um, set of clubs whose owners have decisive influence, at least decisive influence or control over both clubs can compete in the same competition. And that's when there's obviously those issues um, for entities that are wanting to buy more than one club in different leagues have to bear in mind because if that actual issue arises and both teams become successful, that is potentially something which is obviously going to curtail 
the potential value of those clubs if one of them isn't able to compete in what could be a lucrative Europa League or a lucrative Champions League run. How did Red Bull uh, manage to kind of get around that situation with with RB Leipzig and and Salzburg? Well, there there were... um, Ultimately, what uh, was demonstrated was that Red Bull actually didn't have control over both clubs. There were particular um, partnership, commercial partnership agreements. There were particular individuals that sat on um, uh, boards that had decision-making capabilities. There were particular transfers and loans between the clubs, etc. And what um, the, both clubs had to demonstrate was that um, Red Bull, the entity, didn't actually have um, those controlling elements over both clubs. And what actually happened in the end after the investigations were, I can't remember which club it was offhand, but one of the clubs effectively then had to demonstrate um, and had to terminate quite a lot of cooperation agreements with the other to show that they were at an arm's length and that there weren't those competing um, interests which could effectively devalue the integrity should those two teams play each other and play in the same competition. Because it composes an enormous headache, I suppose, isn't it, for, for clubs wanting to... Um move forward with, with that kind of multi-club ownership model. Um, it, it has its benefits, as you've touched on there, but also another benefit that could arise, certainly for, for UK clubs, you feel, is um, around Brexit, which I know you briefly touched on before. I mean, a, a quick look at Liverpool's um, youth setup there. I mean, they've got players like Mateusz Muschelowski, who they've got high hopes for, um, uh, Melkamu Frauendorf, players like that, who've come to the club in the past 12, 18 months prior to Brexit rules um, kicking in. Um, that would ultimately, um, if it was to happen now, prohibit those kind of players from moving to, to Liverpool um, as freely as they could do. I suppose a multi-club ownership, uh, having more clubs in a stable across Europe means you can place those players around there until such time that they um, tick the right boxes for uh, achieving a permit. And you kind of think that's going to be a huge boost to, to, to kind of the bigger clubs in, in securing top European talent because otherwise it, it prohibits them from doing so. It's true. Um, There's always a number of nuances in all of that. And there's almost two things combined. One is obviously the multi-club ownership model. The second is obviously the post-Brexit governing body endorsement process, which is the work permit process, which has changed quite considerably. Because if you remember, and as you know, um, you know, whilst we're in the European Union, um, the ability for European citizens to move freely between member states was enshrined in the, the European treaties. That's obviously not the case um, post-Brexit. And then the FA, along with the the Premier League and the EFL, have put in new regulations, which effectively mean um, if you uh, are an international player that hasn't played the right number of international games, depending on the strength of your country and where the country, your country that you're playing in is ranked, then it's basically a points-based system. And then it depends on the strength of the league that you are effectively playing and then how well your club is doing in the, 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 the league as a result. So um, you're right to the extent that um, if, um, uh, let's just say, FSG by a Belgian club, for example, or a Portuguese club, for example, that yes, it is possible to be able to potentially buy particular players, put them in um, those leagues which are historically more uh, um, EU friendly to a degree in terms of inf- immigration purposes and then once either they play the right number of requisite games or are playing international football um, or are playing in a strong league Belgium is one of the uh, one of those categories at least that if you play in a certain amount of games you're likely to be able to get um, a work permit into the UK the issue is like we talked about is 
strategically, I would have thought one of the main aims for um, those those teams or those ownership group is really being able to push those clubs into European competition and into Champions League competition. And there's obviously a big risk, a significant risk, that if they actually are successful and they're barred from those competitions, then the, the, there is a, effectively a financial ceiling because of those clubs not being able to compete in competition. But yes, you're right in that there is that feeder process um, that there might even be without current ownership. You know, Vitesse Arnhem, if I remember correctly, um, have good relationships with Chelsea, if I remember correct, yeah. uh, correctly. They're, they're, they don't have um, current um, co-owners or control, Charles doesn't have control over them, but at the same time, they have a very good cooperative understanding and it might well be that even if FSG aren't looking or other clubs aren't looking to purchase clubs that there are strong cooperation agreements in place with a number of um, uh, clubs in particular strong leagues that can benefit both parties in the short to medium term. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. FSG um, through their recent Redbird investment have been quite specific on um, areas that might be used. I mean, they've talked about adding um, more sporting teams. They haven't been specific in terms of saying we want to add more um, football teams. They've mentioned um, about the NHL and the NBA. The NFL seems cost prohibitive to add in new franchises because of the sheer cost involved. I don't think there's a team worth less than $1.5 billion um, in among that group because it's the most one of the most lucrative sporting leagues in the world. Um, but it does seem that this kind of model does seem to chime a bit more with what FSG do in terms of creating value, um, whether it be players' cost efficiencies or something that they absolutely love. Um, so, so this does seem to be something which does seem to, to chime with the kind of model that they have in place already and seems to be almost a natural progression. Well, indeed. And, you know, I think just as you said, there's probably a slightly wider play, which is, um, you know, they've always got the Red Sox. They've got um, different multimedia interests as well. LeBron James and others are now shareholders in the wider group, um, as well as the, the the new minority shareholders um, that have come in relatively recently, which obviously frees up capital in lots of different directions. So I think it's probably fair to say that um, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, FSG are... Um, going to be looking for the football clubs. It might well be that they're looking for the sports um, properties in the, in the more general sense, if that's um, football clubs possibly, but if that's um, other particular um, entities across the world um, from a sporting perspective and or from an entertainment perspective, because ultimately the links between football, sport, entertainment, um, uh, um, you know, streaming, um, premium content, music, film, TV, all of these entertainment industries are overlapping in so many different and diverse ways. I mean, you know, everyone's always talking about, for example, I'm not wanting to go off tangent, you know, Premflix as a way to be able to, um, uh, you know, exploit in a positive way greater broadcasting revenues. And we've seen with Super League, we've seen with Project Big Picture, um, the idea of wanting to engage fans in a slightly different way, possibly bypassing broadcasters. So you can see where all of this is going, which is to a degree sports properties that um, they have a track record of being able to positively bring success to those teams within reason. 
whilst at the same time growing those properties valuations um, and then also obviously um, you know being able to take advantage of those um, situations just in a positive way again like they did with Liverpool however many years ago it was where you know they effectively bought Liverpool almost out of administration have put significant resource into the to the club and now are one of the again the top teams um, in Europe so um, you know, hopefully, as a Liverpool fan as well, and um, that will continue to a degree. But you know, you can see where the strategy ultimately is: buy undervalued assets, use expertise um, and um, the right personnel in the right way, and build up a successful strategy on and off pitch. Because Jerry Cardinale's Redbird coming on board kind of brings that expertise, I suppose that you, you allude to there, because um, he he's a track record for. Um, monetizing that that space around content, I suppose. I mean, he's had a hugely um, successful stint with the Yes Network and, and things like the Legends Hospitality, which he ran with, with Jerry Jones um, at, at the Dallas Cowboys. So he, he's a huge track record with that. And, and he's also gone in with The Rock, uh, Dwayne Johnson on, on the XFL and hit him and LeBron James um, already had a, have a, a relationship. Um, and, and all these things have kind of aligned to to kind of come together and have this big restructure at FSG. Um, he also has interest, and I've heard him speak on it previously, about um, interest in European football, and he's quite insightful about how he views it. I mean, he made a big thing about traditions, and, and it kind of, I suppose that flies in the face of what we saw with um, the, the Super League plot a, a few weeks back. Um, but he's already bought, he has a majority ownership stake in Toulouse, um, and last week he... Um, took small steps to take a, a very small minority stake in Malaga um, in Spain, um, which I, I suppose that you can you can read into that as much as, as you want, really. But I suppose that positions him well, because it looks to be there's going to be a change of ownership at some stage at Malaga, um, and they require a capital of in, investment in the short term. And, and one of the requirements from the, um, the judicial administrator there was to have someone be able to come in and sit on in board meetings and have a stake um do you think that might be a, a logical next step because they seem like they're, they're a huge club with or, or been in the champions league not too long ago they seem a club with enormous potential um that kind of fits together with um toulouse they're almost a similar demographic in terms of their type of cities and you feel that they're, they're two clubs that could with the right and right structure go and uh, you know make quite a successful stint in the league above um do you think that is something that we we could see see happen, and is there a possibility? Do you feel to have those come in with the FSG model, or do you think one will stay separate from the other? It's difficult to know. Um, all, all I would say on that front is, I think what is happening at the moment because um, of the pandemic and because of big revenue shortfalls, in particular leagues, France obviously being one with their TV broadcasting deal, which is you know plummeted um, in truth. Um, and the same issues with Spain. And in a way, that's why the, the Premier League domestic renegotiation looks so healthy, even though it's um, basically, um, you know, a renewal on the same terms, is there is a lot of capital out there at the moment, especially American capital, I think, looking at the European sports landscape and market and thinking there's still some real growth, um, valuation growth here to different degrees. So I think I think ultimately that the actual issue or question or strategy is um, there are there is plenty of capital out there looking for undervalued and underappreciated assets. 
um, and behind, underneath that, looking at where there is potential growth in the short to medium term. And if that's, for example, um, I mean, look, it looks like obviously um, Super League and um, set places for Champions League or what would have been the elite competition is off the table, at least in the short term. But the query actually is is whether when things get back to normal and there's obviously a, a cash crunch for a lot of clubs still that need external investment, um, when the bounce happens and when people and the world, please God, starts getting back to a little bit more normality, um, whether those investments at what some people see as an undervalue because of the cash crunch that's been happening means actually those investments in three to five years actually become quite um, important strategic um, positioning for especially for US side investors that have seen how their US market works and obviously it's different in uh, Europe with more of the, the pyramid structure and relegation and competitive balance and everything else that comes with it but at the same time people positioning themselves to come out of the other end the other side of this economic you know um, slump to a degree so that um, you know there, there are the possibilities and upsides later down the line. Just to, to kind of pick up on the point about Premier League rights there, um, and we'll, we'll double back and, and just finish on on, on topic again. Um, the uh, the rights have been kind of stayed at the same rate um, for the next cycle, which is twenty twenty two to twenty twenty five. Um, that has to be seen as as a win for the Premier League and, and its member clubs, because I suppose if it would have gone um, to auction, then the, the likelihood is that there was a good chance that those would have been driven down, um, especially with BT possibly looking at selling um, the BT sports side of the business. Um, But it also gives the Premier League, I suppose, a little bit of breathing space and the clubs themselves some um, security over their cost base moving forward that um, they'll have this for the next three years, but also hoping that there will be um, more interest and those revenues will be driven up by the time 2025 comes around because AT&T and... Um, look like they're, they're going to be going ahead with a huge merger with Discovery. I mean, Discovery already have their, their kind of fingers in, in sports pies with Eurosport and AT&T own um, Warner Group, which has Turner Sports and interest in the MLB and the NBA. So they, they seem to be moving towards, we mentioned about Premflix before, about this um, creating a huge streaming platform, which will be bigger than Netflix, but one that also has had a previous interest in sport. So it would be interesting to see whether the, the likes of themselves and DAZN will be um, at the table in 2025. And obviously the, the stronger the the broadcasters that are coming to the table to, to kind of look at these rights, the better for the Premier League and, and the bottom line for the biggest clubs. You've summed it up better than I could have done. I mean, I think the, um, you know, it's still subject to government sign-off um, based on an exemption under the, the, the Competition Act. And I think there's a consultation going on at present. But, you know, I think it's ultimately a very good deal for the Premier League to be able to have such, um, you know, stellar domestic broadcasters who, and just remember, you know, 5 billion out of the, the 9 billion globally is a huge amount of revenue to guarantee for effectively the next four years because we're, we're still one year out of the, the the new deal would any new deal that would otherwise happen so to having that stability um i think is um, a huge win for um the premier league clubs and the premier league generally and you know in a way um it has to be a massive another massive tick box for richard masters who you know comes in uh i'm trying to work out now almost two years ago 
um, and has to deal with um, COVID, has to deal with Project Big Picture, has to deal with the European Super League and has to deal with a rights a five billion pounds rights renewal. So, um, you know, I, I, I would hasten to say that, um, you know, no uh, chief exec of any uh, member association, never mind the Premier League, couldn't have probably had four or five bigger, more seismic um, strategic um, decisions to make over the last 18 to 20 months and come out the other side looking pretty good and feeling pretty good about um, what has occurred. So, yeah, I completely agree. I think zone might have something to say about the the auction um, process now from what some reports are saying that they may have wanted to get involved. Who knows whether they would have or not. Um, I think there's loads of interesting side issues around if BT Sport get their next set of games and some of those 1230s become evening Saturday kickoffs, which obviously become prime position of whether that becomes an attractive um, additional um, you know set of rights to be able to partially sell um, by way of BT Sport, you know, if it's minority, if it's majority sale, if it's cooperation agreements with other types of um, OTT or terrestrial broadcasters. But I think ultimately it's a it's a huge win for the Premier League to guarantee those monies for four more years and probably just bulk up in a way the finances of those clubs to know that they've got four years worth of at least 100 to 110 million pounds worth of, uh, of revenues. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, just to um, to kind of finish with a couple of questions on on kind of multi club ownership. And um, as we're recording this podcast today, it's uh, emerged that um, kind of a, a forgotten face at Liverpool, almost Taiwo Owenie, has um, is kind of returned. He's been granted a work permit. Um, he's been on loan. Um, I think it's been at Mainz and Union Berlin for the past eighteen months or so. He's been granted a work permit going back to Liverpool. They they signed him uh, two thousand fifteen for four hundred thousand um, pounds, and it, they're, they're rumoured to be wanting up to upwards of eight million to him. I suppose his spell away from the club at, um, at clubs like Union Berlin and, and, and Mainz has helped drive that value up. And I suppose it, there, there was an element there of um, if if FSG were to look at multi-club ownership, you could almost make the case that, that there are some guys that don't even need to to play to to be able to to make them that, that kind of regular revenue stream where they, they play their football elsewhere, they, they're attached to the club and ultimately they move on for, for healthy profits. I mean, we've seen it, what Michael Edwards has been able to do already in the confines of how he works. Um, it, it kind of opens up that interesting proposition if, if he is to, to move on. It's a £7.6 million profit on a player that's never played a, a game in a red shirt. Yeah, I think it's, look, I... Um, you know, in the past, especially Liverpool, um, there's been a lot of controversy around the transfer committee hasn't there and um, uh, previous managers not necessarily deciding or feeling that um, they're getting their top players and everything else that comes with it. And you look at recruitment, lots of other clubs who have been a bit hit and miss. And, you, you know, you look at Michael Edwards' you know, main strategic time at the club and, you know, bar a couple of players who, unfortunately, if you look at Cater or Chamberlain, for example, have had bad injuries over that spell, every big signing um, has been, you know, an overwhelming success in truth. And a lot of the time, just as Chelsea had done, had done brilliantly over a period of time, is, you know, you recruit um, not necessarily for your first team, um, 
but you are recruiting top stars who then will go on loan at various clubs and um, will potentially then earn significant amounts sometimes from not playing too much from uh, too much first team football. Um, that that is going to change a little bit potentially with the new FIFA rules around loan players um, and the amount of loans that particular clubs can have from the the season after next, I believe. But at least in in the short term, yeah, it's exactly right. It's it feeds into the work permit point. It fit, feeds into multi club ownership. It feeds into cooperation agreements with third party clubs generally. Um, is the, the player trading element of clubs who you know, in a way is brought on by financial fair play and needing to break even and needing to be in the black and needing to not make huge losses, which is one way to be able to really push profits in different directions is a player trading point. We saw it with Philip Coutinho. We've seen it with Suarez back in the day. Liverpool make big profits when they sell their best players is the truth. Now, obviously, in the last few years with the commercial drivers from winning the Champions League and winning the, the Premier League, that's helped immeasurably and the big commercial deals that come as a result. But player trading for a lot of company, a lot of clubs, big or small, form a major part of um, that club strategy. Do you think this is a trend which we're going to see? continue um because i know us investors particularly look at the uh, the premier league as, as being undervalued um that's certainly the, the viewpoint from from there i mean as we touched on before i mean nfl teams almost cost prohibitive over there to, to, to get involved in unless you have the deepest of deep pockets um but for for kind of owners who are already in situ i suppose i mean having ownership of multiple clubs in, in, in different places across Europe. I know you touched on it at the start with the various broadcasting rights um, that, that come with it. I mean, some of them can be extremely lucrative, uh, probably not as lucrative as the Premier League, but some of them nevertheless that, you know, kind of lucrative streams to be part of. I mean, do you think we're going to see more and more of this? Because um, obviously, I suppose some clubs, are their, their value has, has plummeted as a result of the pandemic given the financial pressures they face. Some of them face the brink. Um, and, and I suppose there are clubs out there who are going to be available at, at cheaper prices. I mean, Malaga possibly being an example of that. I mean, Toulouse were in dire straits when after relegation when, when um, Redbird FC took over there. So that it, it, do you think there's probably going to be more of this as we, we kind of navigate our way out of the pandemic? I think, you know, it's important to understand from a valuation perspective what owners are potentially buying. In the States, with the general closed model of the league status, which means... No relegation, no promotion, a draft system which real effectively reallocates competitive balance on a yearly basis. Um, you, you know, for example, take the MLS. On the whole, you, MLS clubs know the minimum amounts that they're going to be receiving every year, and then with drafts and you know a very stringent set of cost control measures and recruitment um, uh, parameters. Whereas, you know, I think um, those sophisticated buyers also are fully aware of the value swings that happen in European sports and specifically European football. Because on a number of ways, if we take um, relegation and promotion, that is obviously a big risk and reward um, uh, multiplier, however you want to value that by way of um, valuation. And alongside that, there is that perception, as you talked about, about whether broadcasting rights are still effectively undervalued or overvalued or whether they've come to a peak or whether there's going to be drive in the international market. And the last thing that obviously also goes towards valuation is, you know, how profitable clubs have been in the past are currently 
and whether they're going to be that way in the future. And a lot of that was driven by the cost control provisions in the Premier League and in the Football League, the FFP, UEFA um, um, provisions as well. So that if, for example, you're in um, a, an environment, at least pre-COVID, where you couldn't make big losses, broadcasting rights were um, increasing either domestically and or internationally, and your club was less likely to get relegated out of the Premier League, that was a pretty solid bet for a good um, valuation piece. Now, because of um, you know clubs um, having to stem cash flows because of the pandemic, mixed with obviously now a good broadcasting base, broadcasting revenue base, and then a query over what's going to happen with UEFA and Premier League cost controls over the next three to four years, there has to probably be a little bit more feeling of instability in the market. Is truth, but instability usually brings with it opportunity, and that's the and I guess that's the the playoff that different types of investors will be grappling with at the moment. Just to finish, how, how do you view um, the, the Premier League coming out of um, COVID? Because I know we touched on the job that Richard Masters has done in terms of having to fight all these fires um, one after another. It, it, it seems that when you look across Europe, I mean, the collapse of that media pro deal in France was huge. I mean, they've had to take a, a deal with, I think it's Canal Plus, they had to go back to on a hugely reduced um, sum which ultimately the clubs had already started to spend what they were thought they were going to be guaranteed from Media Pro. Um, so, and then you have to, you kind of there's been similar problems in Italy and Spain's not been great, and and you, you kind of think that through all this, the Premier League seems like it's only going to strengthen its hand as as the dominant force in in, in European football. Um, stepping out of this, it's, it it doesn't seem like the the brands have been weakened to the extent that they have been elsewhere. I know PSG. Are, probably a, a different kettle of fish because of the way where they're funded. Um, but certainly with Madrid and Barcelona and Juve, they're, they're sticking to the guns over the Super League. It shows you that the financial pressures they face are, are very, very real indeed. So the, the Premier League seems well-placed to to be the strongest to emerge from, from what we've seen in the past year. I think all of that's fair. The one thing I would say is that, you know, we're always one year behind in terms of accounts, aren't we? So mm. truth is we're going to see at some point in the next seven to eight to nine months, pretty, pretty stark Premier League accounts, which are going to show huge losses for that full pandemic year, in truth. You know, we only saw the last accounts based on three or four months of the, the pandemic. And granted, that was to do with broadcasting rebates as well and other monies, whatever else it might be. But I think that the truth is, is that it's um, even though it's slightly delayed or staggered, the 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 current season's Premier League clubs' accounts are not going to look good whatsoever. But in relative terms to some of the continental clubs, I agree we're in a stronger position, especially if it might actually be because the Premier League itself are looking at ways to be able to soften the short-term losses um, made by their member clubs because of the longer-term broadcasting deal they've been able to get. I also think the other just brief thing to bear in mind is when I was chatting to one of the guys I do another podcast with um, Omar Chowdhury from 21st Club and we were talking about um, the idea of transfer fee and wage misalignment for the the, the, the transfer windows gone and are coming and you know one of the issues was to do with almost a re-equilibrium a re-emergence of what the new of what the new transfer um, market was going to look like really post-COVID, which is lower transfer fees, basically, um, for, um, you know, a, a new world where everyone's not earning as much money for all the different reasons we've already talked about. 
but the thing that usually takes a little bit more time to align are wages because there's always a lag between new contracts and then contracts running out effectively. And I think the one thing that isn't aligned at moment, and lots of clubs, interestingly, are talking about it when they're trying to think about buying new players. And this isn't the elite, elite players. They're always going to go for big money and for large wages. Um, are the mid-sized Premier League clubs who are looking to renegotiate deals or buy players. That I think there is a real misalignment of, of wages um, at present and what players would think they would be owed by way of renegotiations or new contracts being offered, I still think that mis there is a misalignment to a degree. And that, I think, is the next re-equilibrium, if that's the right way of, um, of putting things, so that um, whilst transfer fees and the, the volume of those transfers obviously decreased rapidly in the, in the, the windows or part of the windows that have happened so far, the fascinating thing to look out for for this current window, I think, from my perspective, is not look behind the one or two or three or four mega transfers that happen and look to the, the volume and number of those, you'd say, normal deals that are happening into Premier League and between different leagues. Um, and from a wage perspective, it'll be fascinating to see what happens there, I think. Absolutely. I mean, Liverpool's a, a prime example. I mean, I know they, there's, there's often a lot of criticism aimed at FSG in terms of their lack of transfer spend. Um, but wages are something which have increased, um, accelerated quicker than the rest of the competition for them. I mean, I, I suppose a lot of that's been um, brought about by bonus payments from the Champions League. And we'll see another big rise in wages, I imagine, for the next accounting period because of the bonus payments from the Premier League. So uh, for winning the Premier League. So it, it seems like it's going to be a, a little while before we, as, as you touched on there, we, we start to see the dust settle and actually know what the impact of COVID has, has actually been and, and what the, the new football looks like, I suppose. Um, but it's been absolutely fascinating having you on, um, Daniel, to, to give us your insight and I really appreciate it. And it's, um, yeah, uh, it'd be interesting to, to see what the next 12, 18 months brings in terms of multiple of ownership, but um, it's it's never dull, uh, Anfield, and I, imagine, I, don't, I don't think any of us were expecting the, uh, the, the late Sunday announcement of a, a European Super League, so that's kind of pre preoccupied everyone for a, a couple of weeks at least, but um, hopefully we'll, we'll start to, to know what the, the, the future plans look like um, away from this and coming out of COVID very soon. But um, thanks very much to Daniel and thank you to uh, those of you watching and listening um, to the podcast at home. And we look forward to welcoming you back for the next edition very soon. Take care. You've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo.